Welcome. Salutations. What's crack a <laughs> Anyway, I'm Ashley. And I'm Sierra. And this is your Weekly, Weekly Dose of Wicked. This is officially our first episode of our new podcast, Weekly Dose of Wicked. How excited are you? So excited. So for the occasion, I wore my shirt that says, let me seduce you with my knowledge of serial killers. (laughs) Of course you did. Yeah, I've got that on. Um, So for today's episode, we are going to cover the case of Heidi Allen. I just want to clarify that in our podcast logo, it says a Weekly Dose of Wicked a humorous true crime podcast. I just want to clarify that we don't think murder is humorous. We think we are funny. But, you know, dad was really bothered. (laughs) Okay, but dad was really bothered that I said, like, a humorous true crime podcast. He was like, Heidi Allen's murder is not funny. But I didn't mean the murder was funny. I meant meant we were funny. So I just want to clarify that from the beginning. We do not think the murder of anybody is funny. We think we are funny. And there are some parts of cases that are humorous. There are some things that happen that are kind of funny. Okay, so anyway, we're going to start off with the case of Heidi Allen. For those of you that don't know, Heidi Allen disappeared from New Haven, New York, which is very close to where our parents are from. We lived there also as children, so it's a case near and dear to our hearts, and I chose it as my first case because I think it is the case that first got me really interested in true crime. We're just going to jump right into it. Born September 14th, 1975 to Susan and Ken Allen. Heidi had one sister, Lisa Buskey, who was four years older than Heidi. I thought that was interesting since I am four years older than you, Ashley. So I thought that was a you know nice little, little similarity we had there. Heidi was an all-league high school athlete, and she had earned the nickname the Tower of Power. Played volleyball for her height. She was 5'11". Heidi recently had graduated from high school a year early, and she was taking classes at Onondaga Community College. She was majoring in human services and had put out over 150 applications, including one to the Oswego County District Attorney's Office. Heidi wanted to use her degree to either go into counseling or teaching. She listed multiple volunteer positions on her resume, one of which was counseling students at Mexico Elementary School. So when I read that, I thought it was really weird that like a high school student was counseling students at the elementary school. But then I remembered when I was in middle school, they used to let me teach them to read at Mexico Elementary. (laughs) And they also let me, um, you know, like work in the office. So I guess it wasn't really that weird. I remember that. And me and all my friends thought about how nerdy you were. (laughs) I was nerdy, but that's fine. (laughs) Anyway, so Heidi's remembered as always putting her family first. Her sister Lisa said that Heidi absolutely cherished her family. She also said that Heidi had an infectious smile and would always put others before herself. She's also described as being smart and sassy. Heidi began working at the D&W convenience store at the intersection of State Routes 104 and 104B in New Haven when she was just 15 years old. She saved up money to buy her first car. When she wanted a perm or contact lenses, she paid for that herself. It was a great job for her to have. It was close to her house. And also the owners, Christine and Matt Duell, were family friends. Unfortunately, this would become the scene of Heidi's disappearance. On April 3rd, 1994, it was a cold, snowy day in the small town of New Haven, New York. Most of the town was spending their morning getting ready for a lovely Easter Sunday, unaware that their small town was about to become a whirlwind of fear and chaos. Heidi went into the DNW early that morning, and her longtime boyfriend, Brett Law, actually met her there, which apparently he did often. I had that he drove her there because that's what I thought happened. Um, That's what a couple of people said, but her car was at the gas station, so he must have just met her there. He said he would go there and stay with her until it like picked up business for her safety. He was worried about her being there by herself. So he stayed there with her until about 6.30. Uh, until he felt comfortable leaving her alone. Sometime between 7.42 and 7.55 a.m., Heidi Allen, 18, disappeared without a trace. It's a really small window of time, which I think is really interesting. Uh, I also think it's interesting. I also think it's interesting because based on the evidence, it's actually an even smaller window of time than that. So at 7.42 a.m., there's a receipt of the last transaction at the till. But between 7.42 and 7.55, other customers came into the DNW. Um, There's, like, evidence of that because... 
there's no receipts, but on the counter, there's like little stacks of money where like people had come in to buy things and there was no clerk there. And so they had like left cash as an act of good faith for like the things that they were getting from the store. I, I don't know if there were two or three stacks, but like there was multiple stacks of money. So that means that other customers came in between 742 and 755. So just before 755, a customer came into the DNW and not being able to find the clerk, he went outside. It just so happened at that exact moment that a deputy was driving by. So he waved him down and this deputy was Deputy Curtis and he notified dispatch at 7.55 a.m. So it was a matter of literally 13 minutes from the time that Heidi closed out her last transaction. Multiple people came in when she was gone and then they they got dispatched. Like, I mean, it was 13 minutes, which I think is crazy. Like, that's a really tiny window. The deputy was concerned because there was no sign of Heidi, but her purse was still behind the counter. Why do you look so confused? It's just my face. I'm listening. Okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure that you didn't have something to ask because you just looked really confused. Okay. So the deputy was concerned because there was no sign of Heidi, but her purse was still behind the counter. Her car keys were sitting on the counter and her red station wagon was parked outside of the building. Uh, The Oswego County Sheriff's Department also took note pretty immediately that the register was untouched. There was no money missing, so it wasn't a robbery. Pretty quickly, they were able to get their ball rolling on this disappearance. A lot of times in these types of cases, you know, police kind of hesitate to file a missing persons report. I mean, we know that from our, you know, deep knowledge of true crime from all of the podcasts that we listen to (laughs) and all of the documentaries we watch. But uh, we know that like that's pretty common. They don't want to file a missing persons report, especially when someone's over 18. Uh, They usually like to think that, you know, there's a good chance that they could have run off and started a new life or whatever. But I think the reason why this case got moving so quickly as far as like trying to find her is that all of Heidi's belongings were at that gas station. Like she didn't have any money. I mean, it didn't mention anything about a cell phone, but it was 1994. So she probably didn't have a cell phone, right? Probably not. Okay, so I, I don't think she had a cell phone. So anyway, her ID was there, her wallet was there, her debit card, I mean, all of her cash, her car keys, her car, like everything. She didn't take a single thing she owned. So they definitely did not think that she went off on her own free will. Within 88 minutes of that last recorded purchase at 742, there's a full-blown search underway. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think that's phenomenal turnaround time, like 88 minutes. We're literally talking about, I mean, before 9 a.m., really? Yeah, that's I mean, crazy. does that math check out? I'm not a mathematician, but I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's about, I mean, whatever. I would say right around 9 a.m. So, I mean, pretty quick. Less than an hour and a half, they have a full-blown search underway. And that's from the time she went missing, not from the time that she was reported missing, because that was even later. I mean, you know, 13 minutes. 13 so. minutes. They were on it as far as that goes. They already started reporting this on the news. Uh, one thing that they did not do that they should have done was set up roadblocks. So another thing that they would normally do in these types of cases, which I thought was interesting, they would normally turn this investigation over to the New York State Police. The New York State Police obviously have a lot more resources and they're better equipped to handle this type of crime. But it seemed that there was some sort of a grudge between head sheriff Charles Nellis and state police trooper Jack Doyle. So for this reason, the Oswego County Sheriff's Department did not allow the New York State Police to take over. Pretty quickly after the news aired about Heidi, leads start coming in. I mean, really, really quickly, actually. What the police needed to figure out was who that last transaction was at 742. And they actually didn't have to wait very long at all to figure that out. So the seventh person to call in with a tip was Richard Thibodeau. He had called because he'd come into the DNW that morning to buy cigarettes. Uh, his receipt was timestamped for 742. And he was the last known person to see Heidi Allen alive. From the get-go, Richard was, I mean, super cooperative with police. He told them, like, he just wanted to help. He gave a statement almost immediately. Uh, he was really upfront with why he was at the DNW that morning. He said he had woke up early. And again, it was Easter Sunday. So he'd woken up early. And he was really just jonesing for a ciggy. His pack was empty. So he checked his girlfriend's pack. And she had just one smoke left. So he took it. But knowing that when she woke up, she was going to be pissed. He ran on down to the DNW to grab two more packs. And then he returned home. Once home, they got ready for the day. And by 8.35, they were driving back by the DNW, which was now swarming with police to go to his girlfriend's parents' house to celebrate Easter. So based off of his story, he went to the gas station, got there 7.42. He checked out uh, by 8.35. So less than an hour later, he had already went home, gotten his girlfriend, himself, and also she had multiple children. They had all gotten ready and they were driving back by the DNW. So once he got to his girlfriend's parents' house, he saw on the news about Heidi missing from the DNW. So at first he was actually a little hesitant to call because he didn't really think that he had anything pertinent to tell him. I mean, he had literally just went in there and bought some cigarettes. But after his girlfriend's mother urged him, he ended up calling the Oswego County Sheriff's Department and just let him know 
what he knew that he had been there buying cigarettes. He had no idea that he was the last person to see her. So it's also worth mentioning that he had made note of a red sports car that was at the DNW the same time he was. And that customer checked out at 741 and was parked in the parking lot right in front of him. These two guys are here at the same time. To me, it seems like, I mean, that doesn't really give much time. Like he couldn't have been there very long. You know, there's literally a minute in between transactions. On Easter Sunday, Robert Aubrey, who's an investigator with the New York State Police, heard about Heidi's disappearance. So he actually notified the Oswego County Sheriff's Department about a body that was actually found on the same day in Agawam, Massachusetts. How far away is that? Uh, I actually looked that up because I thought you would ask me that. And it was like four and a half hours. So okay. not terribly far. So initially my thought here, like I, I had told you, like I actually sent you pictures of these two girls. That's what I sent right. you. And I was like, hey, what do you think of these girls? Like, or these women, I should say, what do you think of these women? Don't they kind of look similar? And you were like, yeah, you know, they had similar cheekbones. They both had curly hair. I mean, they were both, you know, Caucasian females. They had similar smiles, similar eyes. Like I definitely, I definitely saw a lot of similarities between them. So my first thought was like, ooh, truck driver, highway killer, like pulling off the interstate, taking girls from gas stations. You know, that was my first thought. Right. I mean, that's, I'm, that's what I thought. So they were about four and a half hours away. And, and again, this was another girl. And what's interesting is she went missing from a convenience store. Um, her name was Lisa Zeger, and she'd been missing since April 15th of 1992. So we're looking at April 3rd of 1994. And this other girl goes missing April 15th of 1992. So, I mean, I, I was like, on board for a truck driver, serial killer, snatching girls from gas stations. Wouldn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, Lisa was 24. Heidi was 18. Uh, Lisa was also a teacher. She was working at the gas station because, you know, teachers don't get paid enough. And so she needed some extra money. Uh, and Heidi was an aspiring teacher. So another fun fact is that Agawam, Massachusetts is also the hometown of Richard and Gary Thibodeau. So Richard Thibodeau, you know, that guy, that dude from the gas station on 742 AM. Now we got girls disappearing from his hometown. Crazy. Okay, so over the next few days, others came forward with tips, and the Oswego County Sheriff's Department continued their investigation and search for Heidi. In the days following Heidi's disappearance, the driver of the red sports car actually came forward. He told police that he'd been at the DNW that morning and remembered seeing Richard in the store, but he also remembered seeing someone sitting in Richard's van waiting for him. So Richard never mentioned having anyone with him, and by this point, he'd given multiple statements to the police. Each time, his story remained consistent. But this guy recalls there was somebody in the passenger seat of Richard's van. Uh, now I'm just gonna play devil's advocate here. It was snowing that day and you know, from snow in upstate New York, I mean, especially that area. I don't know that he could have seen in the passenger seat of Gary's van. You can't see shit. Right. I don't know what, I don't know what you're thinking, but I don't know. I don't know that I, I mean, I'm not saying like he lied, but I'm just saying he could have been mistaken. He could have thought he saw someone. It could have been a sweatshirt. Another witness ended up coming forward. This witness's name was Christopher Bivens. So he claimed, this is just, <laughs> this is so crazy to me. So he claimed that he was driving by the DNW around 8.30 a.m. when he saw two men struggling with a woman, struggling with a woman, not a woman, a woman. But singular he can't woman. remember the type of vehicle. Yeah, a singular woman. They saw two men struggling with one singular woman. So he said that both men had dark hair. One of the men had the woman in a bear hug from behind and was like carrying her across the parking lot. And she was kind of fighting him. Now, again, keep in mind, he does not remember what type of vehicle they were getting into. That's very important. He doesn't know what type. He doesn't even know the type of vehicle. He doesn't remember. I mean, he'd even say like a van, a car, a truck. He doesn't know the type. So he estimated that the man who was hugging the woman was about three to four inches taller than the woman. And the other man was around the same height as this woman. So remember from earlier on, Heidi was 5'11". So that means that these two men were about eh, like 6'2", 6'3", and about 5'11", right? Other witnesses claim to have seen a light blue van driving erratically. At this point, the statements just aren't really lining up with the narrative that the Oswego County Sheriff's Department is writing. At this point, they've pretty much already got an idea of what happened, but these statements just really aren't uh, lining up. So regardless, they continue their investigation. Within a few days of Heidi's disappearance, the Oswego County Sheriff's Department calls in the FBI, which I thought was, I mean, pretty freaking cool that they called in the FBI. The I, don't, I don't know. I just, I think, right. I just think anytime the FBI is called in, it's like shit's getting real. So this is another thing that I actually had to, I had to Google. So I found a statement that said that Gov Governor Cuomo called in the National Guard to assist in the search. So I saw that and I was like, there's no freaking way this dude's been governor since 1994. Because, you know, Governor Cuomo literally just was, you know, removed from office. This year? 
Right, it was this year. So I actually Googled this. Uh, it was actually his father, Mario Cuomo, not Andrew. So, But I was like, there is no freaking way. I was like, there's no way this dude's been in office since 1994. Can we talk about term limits for freaking anybody? In- right! Like, that, I was I was two. Like, there's no way this dude's been in office since I was two. But no worries, it was not him, it was his dad. Governor Mario Cuomo calls in the National Guard to assist with the search, which... A lot of people thought was crazy, too. Like, he literally called in the military to come look for this girl. Uh, So 200 soldiers arrived, and they searched for Heidi for about a week. A member of the National Guard who assisted in these searches had said that after about day two, they they knew that they were not looking for her alive at this point. They were looking for her remains. Richard and Gary Thibodeau, as well as both of their girlfriends, helped with the search for Heidi. On April 9th, six days after she went missing, they're both seen checking in, helping look for her. Uh, By this point, though, it was already pretty obvious that Richard was a person of interest. Gary actually made mention to Heidi's boyfriend, Brett, that Richard was really feeling heat from the police, that they really thought he had something to do with it, and he didn't understand why. So within 10 days of Heidi's disappearance, the National Guard, law enforcement, and the volunteers covered two-thirds of the county. Unfortunately, they didn't have any luck locating Heidi. The first thing I want to focus on from there is the FBI's involvement. Because... It's the FBI. So the FBI comes in and immediately they started watching Richard Thibodeau. And by association, they started watching his brother, Gary. I mean, at this point, Oswego County Sheriff's Department figures that they're good for the crime. We have a witness that puts a second man in Richard's van, which is easily Gary. Uh, We have this other missing girl from Agawam, Massachusetts, which is their hometown. And it's kind of looking like we might have a serial killer duo on our hands. You know, it's looking like we got these two brothers running around killing girls. So the FBI immediately starts tracking them. Uh, They're snapping photos of them. They're tracing their phone calls. They watched who like was coming and going from their houses. I mean, they had like a full on tail on these guys. So next up, the FBI ends up bringing in a specialist. So this specialist is an internationally known forensic examiner. And he actually claims to have debriefed the only person on record who saw Heidi alive after 7.42 a.m. But we're going to talk about that later because that doesn't really pertain to the case at this point. So the next thing the FBI calls in is a profiler. I don't know about you, but I love a freaking profiler. Criminal Minds is where it's at. (laughs) And I also just want to point out that this isn't just like any FBI profiler. I mean, not that any FBI profiler isn't like kick ass, but this is like a big deal guy like at the time he's not really known for anything like when this goes down but he's actually the fbi profiler who profiled the oklahoma city bomber better known as the unabomber like that's pretty big freaking deal especially for small town new york right like it's a huge deal and i just thought that was so cool this guy's the real deal he does a profile of heidi's killer so what he says is the person that took heidi and most likely killed her at this point because it's been you know quite some time it's been a few days whatever i don't know where we're at at this point when they called him in but at this point they're assuming that she's dead so he says a heidi's killer is going to be someone who's obsessed with the case they're going to insert themselves in the case in any way that they can they're also going to have a background of similar crimes such as stalking kidnapping this actually gets a little fuzzy because neither of the thibodeau brothers match this like neither one of them have a background of stalking um they're not really trying to insert themselves in the case i mean i guess you could say richard was because he called in a tip but like gary at point doesn't want nothing to do with any of this another thing is is that like they didn't have a record of kidnapping or stalking but Gary had a pretty lengthy rap sheet. I mean, he's by no means like on the straight and narrow. I just don't think he's out there like kidnapping and stalking girls. What kind of rap sheet are we talking? I'm going to tell you about it because I looked into the whole freaking thing. Of course you did. I pretty much just took like, I read a book, which I probably should have mentioned in the beginning because that's what I should have done as a good podcaster. By Lisa Peebles, which is this really cool lady. So it was actually released last year and it's called Scrap, Justice and a Teen Informant. And so in that book, it actually takes a pretty good dive into Richard and Gary's like early life. And I really just wanted to touch on it because it's kind of crazy. So Richard Thibodeau and his two sisters, Joanne and Judy, were both born to uh, Florence and Paul Thibodeau. From this point on, I'm going to refer to Florence as Flo. So in 1950, Richard's four and uh, good old Flo and Paul split up. So Flo is working at a chicken processing plant and she decides that it's a lot of work to try and raise three kids by herself on salary of a lady working at a chicken processing plant. So what do you think Flo does? You find a new man. No, no. Flo does what any good mother in this situation would do. She actually took her three kids to a local Catholic orphanage and just dropped them off there. Yes. Mom of the year. In the years following their breakup, Flo and Paul actually end up rekindling their romance and they welcome little Gary into their family. So he is the youngest Thibodeau 
Um, at this point, the other kids are still in that orphanage. So I'm not really sure why Gary was so special that they, you know, had him and kept him, but they never put him in an orphanage. So Flo and Paul actually decide to split up again. Flo does end up remarrying eventually. So, you know, that is what she probably, you know, should have done in the beginning, I guess, is try and find a new man. I mean, it is 1950. So she really needed a man to support her. So Flo ends up remarrying John Bovin. I don't know if I said that right, but it's B-O-I-V-I-N. So I'm going to go with Bovin. So at this point, it's been, at this point, it's been seven years since she dropped Richard and his two sisters off at the orphanage. And so she decides to go back there and uh, the orphanage just gives her kids back. So she just takes them on home with her. Good orphanage. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of crazy, but whatever. So with Flo's marriage to John also came two stepbrothers. And I really just added this in because it was funny. This really has nothing to do with anything. But there's two stepbrothers, John Jr. and Henry. Flo continued to work at the chicken processing plant. There we go. I'm back. Look at that. My computer died because I'm a dumbass. All right. Anyway, I just want to clarify. I had my computer plugged in. The plug did not work. All right. So Flo continued to work at the chicken processing plant. And the reason why we know this is because Richard remembers that they would eat chicken seven days a week. But it was okay because Henry, his stepbrother, was a great cook and he could even make shit taste good. And how would he know that? I don't know, but that was his quote. In 1962, Richard is 16 and he decides to leave Massachusetts, that hometown Agawam that they're from. So just to clarify, he left Agawam, Massachusetts in 1962. It's not like he left there in, you know, 1992 when this girl went missing. He left in 1962. At 16, he decides to leave Agawam, Massachusetts and he heads up to Oswego County, New York, where his sister Joanne now lives. Richard starts a good life for himself and he stays out of trouble. Now Gary took an alternate route. So this is where we're going to go into Gary's background, which you wanted and I know you did. Yes, thank You're welcome. Gary stole a car when he was 13. He ended up in reform school. Now, I don't know how factual this is, but it was in that book I read. So, I mean, I'm going to say that, you know, it was probably just a story he told. Gary claims that when he was in reform school, he was a talker and the teachers there and they just really trusted him. So what they would do is they would leave and they would tell Gary just to go ahead and teach the class and they would pay him with half smoked cigarettes and they would just leave him by the classroom window so he could have a little smoke while he was teaching the class. Because he was trustworthy at 13. Right. After he'd just stolen a car (laughs) and and was in reform school, but whatever. Okay. So anyway, Gary gets out of reform school. He heads back to the public school system. He ends up dropping out in 11th grade though. Um, at this point, it really just seemed like he was really in jail more than he was at home. And he was so close. I know, right? 11th grade. Like, why would you go to school for 12 years just to drop out? Like, he only had one year left. I mean, I never said he was a smart man. 1970, he's convicted of breaking and entering and he gets sentenced to three months in jail. Six months later, he's convicted of larceny and harboring a fugitive and he gets three more months. So shortly after that release, he decides that he's going to go join his brother in Oswego County, New York. Going to get on out of Agawam. So again, he left Massachusetts in 1970 to go to Oswego, New York. Fast forward to 1972. Richard and Gary, they have rekindled their brotherly romance and they're out enjoying a night on the town, drinking, having a good time. And they end up meeting this man who really took a liking to them. He thought that they were just, you know, the bee's knees, cool guys. So he starts buying them pitchers and pitchers of beer. And by the end of the night, they are extremely intoxicated and they have signed up to join the military. Good decision. So it turns out, yeah, it turns out that this guy that was buying all this beer was actually a recruiter with the military. So it was all a ploy to get them to sign up, which I think should be illegal. Definitely should be illegal. It probably is illegal, but whatever. I don't think I don't think you can sign up for the military when you're drunk, but I don't know. What do I know? You can't get a tattoo when you're drunk. You can sign up for the military drunk. Right. <laughs> so at this point, Richard's 27 and Gary is 20. They ended up spending six years in the service. Richard did his best to watch over Gary. Uh, but Gary just continued to be a pain right in the ass. As most younger siblings are. Yes, yes, true stories. So he actually went AWOL 11 times in six years and was actually missing for 455 days. What a good service member. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty crazy, but whatever. Okay, so <laughs> um, they both ended up leaving the military with less than honorable discharges. But they really didn't care because they really just wanted to get out of the military. Well, yeah, they signed up drunk. They didn't want to do it. Right. So they didn't want to do it at all. So they got less than honorable discharges and they left. So Richard at this point decides to go back to Oswego County where he had made a good life for himself before, you know, Gary and him got drunk and signed up for the military. But Gary decided he wanted to go back to Massachusetts. So at this point, it's been six years. So we're what, 1978? He goes back to Massachusetts. Uh, Gary's life of poor decision-making continues. In 1983... Police responded to a domestic violence disturbance at Gary's house with his then-girlfriend, Debbie Cutta. Um, the cops asked Gary what the problem was, and he responded with, We're having a fucking fight, all right, with you? <laughs> he then shoved an officer. Um, so he was then convicted of assault and battery on a police officer. And you want to know how much time in jail he got for that? Three months. No, he got six months this time. <laughs> <laughs> 
So after that stint in prison, Gary gets out in six months. Um, I just think it's kind of crazy, these little short little pieces of prison time he has. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like normally you go to prison for a little bit longer than that, but I've never been to prison. I don't plan to, so I don't know. Um, anyway, D- Gary gets out. He gets back with Deborah. After that, though, he quickly moves on to Tina. Uh, Tina has this friend, Sharon, and Gary really doesn't like her. So he distinctly remembers asking his girlfriend, Tina, doesn't your fat friend ever shut her fat fucking mouth? Stand up, dude. Yeah. So actually, it wasn't long after that that Gary and Sharon started dating. Clearly, he didn't mind her mouth being open all that much. So Gary Thibodeau and Sharon Raposa both like to party. They like to do drugs and they like to sell cocaine. But actually, they are not selling cocaine. They're actually selling baking soda. Nice. As if it were, <laughs> as if it were cocaine. Kind of like cocaine I like to do. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> they actually end up um, being held at gunpoint in a hotel room because they've been selling baking soda in place of cocaine. So after this incident, they decide that they want a fresh start. They don't want to be held at gunpoint in hotels anymore. So they move to, do you want to guess where they moved? Yeah, they went to Osego County, New York. I knew I knew you'd get that one. I knew you were a quick one. So at this point, Richard is, don't flip me off on the camera, Ashley. So at this point, Richard is happy and established in Osego County. And he's working with his sister, Joanne's husband, Jack Barlow. So Gary and Sharon relocate and they end up falling in love with the small town feel. Gary at this point had been in a work accident where he'd fallen and he'd really messed up his feet. He'd blown out his heels um, and also had lost multiple toes. So he ended up receiving a payout for that incident from like workers comp or whatever, the company. And they were able to use that money to buy a house in Oswego County. They actually bought a house. I think it was in Mexico, Mexico, New York. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. At this point, we're in 1994. Gary and Sharon are established in Oswego County now. Um, The furnace in their house blows out. It explodes. So they have to vacate the house and have repairs done. So they go and stay at, drumroll, Beck's Hotel in Mexico, New York. Like, people know what that is. Thought that was fun. They don't, but we do, and I just thought it was fun. Bex is adorable. I wish someone would reopen it, but whatever. Anyway, um, it's there that Gary actually meets Heidi for the first time. Uh, Brett, Heidi's boyfriend, his brother is the manager at Bex. So Heidi and Brett actually frequent there a lot, just hanging out. Uh, Brett and Heidi are at... Oh, Brett and Heidi are at Bex, and Gary sees Heidi, and he actually comments to her and Brett about how attractive she is. Brett doesn't care for this. So from then on out, he makes Heidi call Bex before he, like before they go in to make sure that Gary's not there because he's uncomfortable being around him. So that's it. Case closed. Um, Gary, he thought Heidi was attractive and Richard was at the gas station that day with someone in his car, supposedly. So it was Gary and Richard Thibodeau, right? I mean, that's it. There's no other explanation of who it could have been. Had to have been them. That's the end. So back in present day, the police have decided that these two did it. They officially announce... Richard as a suspect 11 days after Heidi goes missing. So at that point, Richard was a suspect. Um, Gary had not been listed as really anything at this point, but um, Richard continues to cooperate with the police. He offers to take a polygraph, which we both know is inadmissible in court. You should never do. Uh, Pretty much. Right. Pretty much all of our, you know, real podcasters in true crime say that you should never take a polygraph because it can just bite you in the ass and they can't even use it in court. So whatever. Anyway, it comes back inconclusive. He offers them DNA samples. He gives them blood, head hair, pubic hair, fingerprints. All the while, he's declining a lawyer because he has nothing to hide. He gives them permission to search his van. They comb it over and they literally find nothing tying him to Heidi Allen. There's nothing. No DNA, no fingerprints, nothing. Um, They also compare the DNA from Richard to the DNA that was found on that girl, Lisa Zeger, up in uh, Agawam, Massachusetts, and it's not a match. So at this point, Richard's girlfriend is like, hey man, you should probably stop cooperating. And Richard's like, nah, I didn't do anything. I I just want to help find that girl, you know? So they start looking into Gary. His girlfriend, Sharon, says that he wasn't in the van that day. She says that when Heidi went missing, her and Gary were asleep in bed and that they never woke up until Richard called to tell them that Heidi was gone. So the police thought this was a really big deal that Richard called Gary to tell him that Heidi was missing. I don't personally think it's that big of a deal. It's a really small town in upstate New York. And I'm sure that everybody and their mother was calling everybody to tell them that Heidi was missing from the gas station. I mean, that's just my personal opinion, but whatever. Nonetheless, she insists that he was with her. He was not with Richard. So our witness from earlier, Chris Bevins, you remember him? He remembers now. He remembers the type of vehicle that the two men were putting this girl in. Now he does. Yeah, now he does. Now he does. It's been, you know, I mean, at this point, it's only been about two weeks, but now he distinctly remembers that these two men were carrying this girl and putting her into a light blue van. Uh, But now he can't remember how tall they were. 
Now he thinks they might have been shorter than he thought before. But then he talks to police again. And this time he thinks that maybe the van was actually white and not light blue. It also maybe it had a stripe down it. It sounds like he doesn't really know. So, yeah. No, I I mean, it sounds to me like maybe he never drove past the gas station. Because I don't know if you remember, but in his original statement, he was sure that he saw these men carrying the girl out of the gas station at 8.30 a.m. And by that point, we know that Heidi was gone. Right. The search was underway at that point. I mean, not quite yet because it was about nine. But I mean, it was pretty close. Like at that point, we know that like they were actively looking for her at 8.30 a.m. Like, there's no way he saw anybody carry ha- carrying anybody out of the DNW at 8.30 a.m. Because Richard Thibodeau drove by at 8.35 and it was swarming with police. Christopher's girlfriend actually comes forward and says that um, Chris is the kind of guy that will do anything, just about anything for attention. The police don't care about that, though. It's fine. They have a witness. He saw the van. It was light blue. Then it was white. Then it had a dark stripe. And he also thinks that the men might have been shorter than he thought. So just to be clear, we go from no vehicle to a blue van to a white van to a white van with a dark blue stripe. Uh, He also said that both men had dark hair. Um, Richard Thibodeau is completely whiteheaded. There's no way that they could have mistaken Richard Thibodeau as a dark-headed man. Uh, Another thing is that we went from, you know, these people were 5'11 and 6'2", 6'3". Now he doesn't know how tall they were. But for the record, Gary and Richard were 5'5 and 5'7". I mean... Quite a difference. Yeah, I mean, a huge difference. Like, that's a massive difference. Like, 5'5 to 6'3", it's almost a freaking foot. Anyway, whatever. 11 days after Heidi's disappearance, Richard is a suspect. On May 25th, they issue an arrest warrant for Richard Thibodeau. So it was about a month. A uh, month and a half after Heidi went missing, that they actually ended up arresting him. But they they said he was a he was a suspect eleven days after she went missing. This time though, they also arrest Gary Thibodeau. They have not said that he is a uh, suspect in this case, but he and Sharon Raposa have um, some unrelated minor drug charges back in Massachusetts from when they were selling that baking soda as cocaine. There are multiple sources that said that this was odd. It was not normal for Oswego County Sheriff's Department or any Sheriff's Department in the area, for that matter, to extradite on a minor drug charge. But they did it. They sent him to Massachusetts to face the music for selling baking soda. So while Richard's in jail, they end up searching his van again. They already didn't find anything, but now they do a more thorough job, but they still find absolutely nothing. So their theory is that he must have cleaned the van. Now you've seen the van, Ashley, and I'm going to post it on our Instagram. Do you think that he cleaned the van? Absolutely not. There's no freaking way in hell he cleaned that van. If he cleans that van, then he doesn't know how to clean. I mean, there's no way. There's no way that he cleans that van at no, he's never cleaned a day in his life. <laughs> right. Like there's no freaking way he cleans that fan. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He must have cleaned it because they did a thorough sweep of it and they found nothing. But I just want to clarify, they did find DNA and they did find hair. I mean, d- hair's DNA, but whatever. I mean, they found bodily fluids. They found hair. They found fingerprints. The problem is, is that none of them belong to Heidi. So I'm not really sure how he cleaned the van of only Heidi, but apparently that's what they did. He has some super technology for the 90s. They can only clean one person. <laughs> right, in, ni- in 1994. <laughs> so anyway, whatever. At this point, though, they come up with a new theory since they didn't find any DNA in Richard's van. They think that maybe Gary and Sharon actually transported Heidi's body in their car, and they must have dropped her body somewhere in between New York and Massachusetts. But they saw the van there. Right, they saw the van there. But they must have taken the van and taken the van to Gary's house and then they must have put Heidi's body in Gary's car and then Gary and Sharon must have drove her to Massachusetts. That's what they think happened. I mean, it sounds very probable to me. I don't know what, I don't know why you're doubting it. They issue a search warrant for the car and they don't find anything again. Now, I couldn't find I couldn't find any pictures of the inside of it, but I mean, based off of Richard's van, I don't think the car was probably that clean. I mean, they're brothers. There's nothing in the car, but they do somehow. They find this receipt no, actually, let's back up. What they find is under the car, the drive shaft looks like it's been recently replaced. And it just so happens that there's a repair shop in Massachusetts that just so happened to replace a drive shaft on a car matching the year, make a model of Gary and Sharon's car on April 4th, 1994. Oh, how they found this receipt? Because it wasn't in the car. Like they got it from the body shop and the body shop was in Lewominster, Massachusetts, which is about an hour and a half out of the way for them to go to Agawam, which is what they were trying to say is like they went to Agawam to see family over Easter. Like that was the reason for being there. So whatever. They're trying to say that they drove an hour and a half out of their way to get the drive shaft on their car replaced in Massachusetts. I think if I'm dumping a body, I'm not replacing a part on my car. Probably not what I'm thinking about doing. Exactly. So anyway, I don't know how they found this receipt, but they find it. This receipt literally though, it doesn't have a VIN number on it. It doesn't have a customer name. Like it literally just says, drive shaft the part like whatever valued customer and the make year make a model of the car it doesn't even have the car's color on it i mean it literally just says like whatever 1972 
whatever car he drove. I don't even know. But whatever. Like it literally just says the year make and model and it matches and it was in Massachusetts. So it fits their narrative. So they pulled this receipt. I don't even know how they found this body shop, but whatever. They did. It's a smoking gun. Uh, sh- sh- I lost my place. Okay. So while Gary's in jail in Massachusetts, though, the prosecution really gets their smoking gun. Two inmates come forward and they claim that Gary has confessed to them. They say that Gary told them that he and Richard killed Heidi and they burnt her remains and that she's never going to be found. So with this info, they feel confident that they can charge Gary with Heidi's murder. So they, you know, transport him back to Oswego, New York. And they're, so Gary and Richard are both being held, you know, in Oswego. And what's interesting is that they actually were both released from jail on a $15,000 bond as they awaited trial. And Richard's bail was paid for by a woman who he'd done work for in the past. He'd renovated her house. And Gary's bail was paid for by a complete stranger. So David Maloney paid for Gary's bond. And to ensure that he would get that money back, he took out a mortgage on Gary's house. So that way, if he decided to run and not attend his trial, uh, David Maloney would get Gary's house as payment. Uh, at this point, though, Sharon Raposa is still in jail in Massachusetts as well on that, ju- on that drug charge. David Maloney actually posted her bail as well. So I think it's really interesting that these two men who, you know, we're so sure have committed this crime were bailed out by complete strangers. I mean, essentially, like this lady, Richard did work on her house and this other guy didn't even know Gary at all. And they bailed him out, paid their $15,000 to get them out of jail. So they clearly- Petty cash. Petty cash. Okay. Okay, high roller. Well, let me just continue to, you know, (laughs) sit here on my dirt floor in my house with my paper walls. Anyway, so clearly not everyone thought that they were guilty. Uh, This is a quote directly from that book I read by Lisa Peebles. And it's from David Maloney. He said, I believe whoever is responsible for Heidi Allen's disappearance never had to lose any sleep about being caught because no one ever looked for them. The search never went any farther than the brothers Thibodeau. I think it's very poetic. It's a very poetic quote right there. Very. So in May of 1995, they go to court. Gary's trial is first. So the trial starts and prosecutor Donald Dodd, he's a, he's a, a fun guy. Um, he starts off by letting the jury know that there wouldn't be anything covered as far as a motive. They didn't have a motive. Uh, he also went ahead and let the jury know that there was no physical evidence, but it didn't matter. He told them that they would hear testimony from Gary's neighbors about seeing Richard at Gary's house that dreadful Easter Sunday. Uh, what he failed to mention is that when they initially interviewed Gary's neighbors, none of them saw Richard at the house. But magically, after a few months and these two being arrested and, you know, like the news different articles, different news stations, like, you know, reporting that these two had done it. They all, all of a sudden they had a recollection that um, Richard was at Gary's house that day. So the first person who was called to the stand was Heidi's boyfriend, Brett. Uh, I just want to say, cause I didn't really mention it before, but we're going to talk about Brett in episode two. I think it's super cringy that Brett was 25. And Heidi was 17, 18. She was 18. But at that point it was her longtime boyfriend. So they'd been together. However long, long time is, you know? So, yeah. Anyway, 25 and 18. Anyway, whatever. Brett's the first person called to the stand. He told the jury all about how he went to the DW that morning. He'd stayed with Heidi until the business picked up. And then he'd returned later that day once Heidi's mother, Susan, had called to inform him that she was missing. Brett was the perfect picture of a grieving boyfriend. He gave testimony on his and Heidi's interactions with Gary Thibodeau. He testified that he and Heidi had come in contact with Gary 10 to 12 times. And each time that they really hadn't shared more than a hello. The defense questioned Brett on Heidi's involvement with Gary on the subject of drugs. Uh, Brett testified that Heidi had never had a conversation with Gary Thibodeau involving drugs. So the next witness they called to the stand is Christopher Bivens. Christopher Bivens, our favorite guy there. Uh, Christopher Bivens is a self-proclaimed automotive expert. He couldn't remember the make and model or even the type of car that this woman was being fought into. But he's an automotive expert. Also, I didn't say it before, but, like, what a piece of garbage right. that he saw a woman getting uh, wrestled into a car and he didn't stop. Like, <laughs> I don't know why he thought that this story was going to, like, age well. Anyway. No one likes you, Christopher. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't like Christopher. And I'm sure uh, Richard and Gary don't like Christopher at all. Uh, anyway, he testified that Richard's van was the vehicle that he'd seen that morning at the DNW. Richard's van is, like, super unique is a good word for it. Have you seen a picture of the outside of Richard's van? No, I think just the inside dirty picture. Okay, so there's a picture. I mean, like, Richard's van is... I don't know that anyone would, like, miss Richard's van. That's one thing that really blew my mind about, like, him just in general. Because Richard's van is... I mean, just just hold, please. Hold on. Let me just text this to you. Because I actually saved a picture of it. Because I just think it's so crazy that um, we don't immediately know that this is the van that Heidi Allen went missing in. Super unique. Super unique van. 
Anyway, all right. I've sent you that picture. Hopefully, it'll come through eventually. Let me know when you get it. Oh, yeah. Super unique. Not white or blue or a stripe. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So, that's Richard's van. That's the van that he saw. So, anyway, he testified that Richard's van was definitely the vehicle that he'd seen that morning at the DW as two men carried a woman across the parking lot. He remembered, oh, sorry, remember that neither of the men Bibbin saw that morning matched Richard or Gary's physical description at all i mean they were dark-headed and richard had white hair i mean gary had dark hair that's fine but like if this is the story we're going with it wasn't richard i mean if we want to say it was gary who was not at the gas station there's no evidence to prove he was there it certainly wasn't richard he was completely white-headed so whatever upon cross-examination the defense questions bivens on his discrepancies and the physical description that he'd given of the two men bivens claimed that it was a year ago at this point and he just didn't really remember what he'd told them about the two men so at one point during the defense questioning, Bivens got testy. He claimed the reason for his changing story of the two men was because he was an auto repair man and he looked at women. Men just weren't interesting to him. Oh. Yeah. So anyway, then the prosecution calls their jailhouse informants. So everything I found on these jailhouse informants and their testimony, uh, neither one of them testified that Gary admitted guilt. One of them said that he asked Gary about the disappearance of that girl and Gary said that she was dead and that they were never going to find her. He said it didn't matter because they'd already decided he was guilty. So, I mean, to me, that's not a confession. I think that's just facts. Right. Like he said, she's dead. They're never going to find her. And they think I did it. So anyway, that was their smoking gun of the jailhouse informant that said he, you know, he had confessed. But anyway, whatever. Following this, the jury heard testimony from Gary's neighbors about seeing Richard at the house that morning. They heard from the sheriff's investigator about the search of Richard's van and how they found no DNA evidence. And finally, Heidi's parents were called to testify. Both Susan and Ken Allen were rightfully emotional. Um, It's noted that the jury was affected by their emotional state of her parents. I don't really know why they were called to testify. Like they didn't actually have anything. I think it was really just for their emotion on the stand because I mean, they didn't have any information. They were asked to identify a photo of her. Anyway, Teresa, which is Richard's girlfriend, her grandparents were called to testify on Gary's behalf. They corroborated that Richard was at their house with Teresa that morning around 9am when the news broke and that um, Richard called Gary to inform him. Sharon Raposa, Gary's girlfriend, was called to testify on Gary's behalf. She testified that Gary was asleep in bed with her until shortly after 9 a.m. when Richard called Gary. At this point, Sharon Raposa was already facing perjury charges for her claims about Gary's whereabouts on Easter Sunday, as well as the days following. Judge Lee Clary had already worked with prosecutor Donald Dodd to offer Sharon Raposa complete immunity if she were to testify against Gary. Other neighbors were called to testify who claimed they had not seen or heard any vehicles at Gary's home that morning. A couple testified that Sharon and Gary were at their home the night before Heidi's disappearance, drinking and playing cards until after 11.30 p.m. The last witness called to the stand was Gary Thibodeau himself. He testified that he'd been asleep with Sharon until shortly after nine when Richard called and told him about the disappearance. When asked about the confession he had given his fellow inmates in that Massachusetts prison, he stated that he had told them he didn't know who did it and he didn't know how he had gotten involved. He was questions about his run-ins with Heidi and he told the jury that he'd met Heidi and he even told them the first time at Beck's motel he had commented on how attractive she was. When asked about his neighbors who were so certain that they had seen Richard's van at Gary's house that morning, Gary said they were simply mistaken. It had been a year and he and his brother had been together many Sundays. He said that they were just simply mistaken about that particular Sunday and he had not seen his brother that day. The jury deliberated for less than four hours. They sent out 50 notes to have testimony read back to them. And with no physical evidence, uh, we're literally just relying strictly on two jailhouse snitches, a man who changed his story numerous times, and a handful of wishy-washy neighbors. The jury found Gary Thibodeau guilty of Heidi Allen's murder. Gary is given the max sentence of 25 years to life and is not eligible for parole until 2019. Prosecutors were certain that with Gary behind bars, his friends and family would come forward and tell them what had happened to Heidi, but that didn't happen. Donald Dodd was also hopeful that Gary would now turn on his own brother in hopes of a deal to lessen his conviction. And Gary said in interviews that if he had information to give them that would exonerate him even if it was about richard committing the crime that he would turn on him in a heartbeat but unfortunately he didn't have anything to tell him so in the months following gary's conviction that nice lady who'd posted richard's bail she changed her mind so richard was put back in jail uh, luckily a friend was able to post his bail again and got him back out so he could be comfortable at home as he awaited his trial where he was certain that after gary's conviction he was going to be given the same verdict i mean they both had to be guilty right otherwise the story doesn't work of course so anyway in september of 1995 it's now time for Richard Thibodeau to go to court. So essentially, Richard's trial was identical to Gary's, with the exception of those jailhouse informants. Uh, Richard's lawyer argued that they could not use that evidence against him, um, since Gary was the one who apparently had confessed, and that Richard had never, you know, confessed. He had never said anything. He wasn't in jail with them. He had never said anything of the sort. 
So the judge actually sided with the defense and they did not use that against Richard. So other than that, entirely, it was a, I mean, copy and paste trial. After a week of testimony, the jury deliberated for nine hours and they returned with a, with a verdict. Not guilty. Richard was acquitted of all charges. During Richard's trial, uh, they were also trying Sharon Raposa. Just a few, you know, few towns over, still in Oswego County. Um, they were charging her with perjury, claiming that she had lied about Gary's alibi. And she'd also lied about them not going to Massachusetts because, you know, they must have dumped her body when they were going to Massachusetts to get that drive shaft in the car changed. Uh, but unfortunately for the prosecution, there's an entire paper trail proving that Sharon Raposa and Gary Thibodeau did not go to Massachusetts. They did not get the drive shaft on that car replaced the day after Heidi disappeared because they were in town. They were in Mexico, Mexico, New York, that is not, you know, Mexico down south. <laughs> They have bank statements um, showing that they went to the bank and deposited cash. They have bill statements showing that they paid bills in person. Uh, Oswego County Sheriff actually testified that he had driven by Gary and Sharon's house on April 4th and their car was in the driveway. So there's no way that they did that. So anyway, Sharon's acquitted of perjury charges. They've decided that she didn't lie. And yet here Gary sits in jail with a max sentence of 25 years which is insane to me. I mean, it like it doesn't work without Sharon and Richard's involvement. Right, the whole case falls apart. With, I mean, the entire case falls apart, like you said. So he actually exhausted all of his appeal opportunities by 2007. Um, over the years, there is some new evidence that had been brought forward. They never found a body. And they also never found any DNA. Uh, but I mean, I think that there was enough brought forward to at least cast reasonable doubt against Gary's conviction. I mean, they took it to multiple local judges, like, you know, the, the appellate court to do an appeal and it was denied. They actually took it on a federal level to the New York State Supreme Court and a federal judge denied it. Um, every time they claimed there was substantial evidence against Gary, but like, I just don't see any, I don't see any substantial evidence against him. No. Like, the entire thing is just corrupt. Like, how did the entire state of New York just decide this man was guilty? Whatever. Okay. Anyway, time and time again, judges claim that there's no new evidence that's damning enough that it would have changed the jury's mind. In the years since Gary's conviction, multiple jurors from the trial have actually come forward and said that they didn't think Gary was guilty. Which to me also blows my mind. Like, if you didn't think he was guilty, then why did you freaking convict him? Like, you could have had a hung jury and had another trial. Right. Could have done a mistrial. Right. They could have had a mistrial and given him a new trial. But instead, they just all went with the flow and convicted him, whatever. I also thought that it was interesting and worth mentioning that Gary actually had written to the Innocence Project, which obviously you and I know what the Innocence Project is. But for anyone that doesn't know, the Innocence Project is an organization that helps people who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes. Unfortunately, the Innocence Project denied helping him, which I was kind of sad about. So I looked into that to see like what their reasoning was, because I mean, to me, this screams this man is innocent. But anyway, I looked into it. And the reason why they denied helping him is because there was no DNA evidence in the case. And apparently the Innocence Project only helps with cases where there is DNA evidence. I didn't know that. So because they scrubbed that van clean, there's no DNA. So <laughs> the dirty van that's clean. Yeah, the dirty van with all kinds of fingerprints and evidence, but none of Heidi's. Anyway, whatever. Over the years, Gary really just ended up giving up hope for any sort of a release from prison. And while he maintained his innocence, he also really stopped caring about himself. He stopped working out. He started smoking again. Um, he's quoted in that book by Lisa Peebles again. Um, he said, I just figured, well, well, there ain't no chance now. No sense in giving them the 25. I'll let my body go to hell and hope I can die a lot sooner. I ain't going to kill myself, but if it happens naturally, that's fine with me. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Gary Thibodeau claimed his innocence until the day he died in prison. He spent 23 years behind bars for a crime he claims he didn't commit. He went as far as to sign all of his outgoing mail for 25 years as Gary the Innocent, which really is sad to me. So sad. So, I mean, like I said, I mean, that's pretty much where this leaves off. The jury came forward, numerous members of the jury came forward and said that they didn't think he did it. There are multiple jurors from Richard's trial that said they didn't understand how Gary's jury could have found him guilty because there just wasn't any evidence. Uh, and I think it was a juror as well that had come forward and said essentially what had happened is that people didn't like Gary. They thought he was an asshole. I mean, he was a criminal. I mean, we're not going to we're not gonna say he wasn't a criminal because he was. I mean, he had a rap sheet. He did some stuff. But I mean, he wasn't a killer. Like he literally, the only, the only record of him being violent was when he pushed the police officer down the stairs. Which I mean, obviously, you know, it's a big deal. He pushed a cop, but I mean, he didn't, he never beaten a woman. Like there was no signs of, you know, he didn't have any domestic disputes with any of his girlfriends other than that one when he pushed the cop. But I mean, it just doesn't fit that profile that, you know, he would have done it. It's heartbreaking. And I mean, like I said, obviously he was not a great guy, but I mean, I don't think he killed Heidi. I mean, he did sell baking soda as cocaine. So. He did sell baking soda as cocaine, but I don't think that that makes him a murderer. <laughs> I think that that makes him a smart man, you know, really profiting. <laughs> 
Oh, is that what you call it? <laughs> really profiting on easily obtainable household items that look like drugs. You know, I mean, it's not his fault that those people were dumb enough to think that baking soda was cocaine. Obviously, they didn't. That's why they showed up with a gun. Right, right. And I mean, honestly, I don't know. I mean, I have never done cocaine, but I feel like baking soda would burn. I don't know if cocaine like burns. Cocaine probably does too. I'm sure it probably does too, but I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like baking soda would burn. Whatever. That's besides the point. We're talking about him killing Heidi here. That's my favorite part of the story. <laughs> I knew you would like it. That's why I put it in there. <laughs> All right. Well, that pretty much wraps up the first the first episode of Your Weekly Dose of Wicked. Next week, we're going to dive more into this case with just some more theories, some more evidence that came, came about over the years. Um, it really gets kind of crazy. But I mean, I think, I don't know. I think it's safe to say, I don't think Gary Thibodeau did it. I don't know. I mean, I just don't think the evidence is there. And really, I mean, I don't, it just doesn't really make sense to me of how 12, uh, another thing, okay, another thing that doesn't make sense to me is why did they not have the trial outside of the county? Right. You can't have a fair trial in a county of, I don't know, I don't know how many people are in the county, 5,000 maybe? I mean, there's more than 5,000, but I mean, it's still a small county. Everybody knows you. I mean, for comparison, I don't know, I should have looked, I should have looked that up. But I mean, this was huge news and this was a small county and it doesn't say specific specifically like where in the county it took place like did it take place in Oswego did it take place in New Haven where she went missing I don't know it just seems crazy to me that they didn't move the trial like a county over are you googling how many people live in Oswego County in 1994 in 1994 when you google people in Oswego County in 1994 all that comes up is Heidi Allen I'm sure it does because it was huge news I don't know that I'm gonna find that I I mean what's the population I mean even now though I mean it really hasn't changed that much honestly because I actually looked at the population in New Haven in 1994 and the population in New Haven now and it literally had increased by like 100 people. Well, it says that there's 100,000 people that live in the county. I mean, there probably is 100,000 people live in the county. I feel like that's a lot. That's not a lot, Ashley. You live in a small county. How many people live in your county? Five. I don't know. There's more than five in your county. I mean, I think... No, I live in a big county. Winston-Salem's in my county. <sighs> I don't even know what county here would be comparable. What about Lincoln County? Yeah, I think that would be comparable. 84,000? I mean, so yeah, I think that's kind of... I mean, I mean, for example, like, I mean, Iredell County. I don't think Iredell's huge. 170. 78,000 in Iredell. Right. Right. So we're looking at like twice the size almost. I don't know. 100,000 people is not that much. It doesn't matter. Regardless though, they should have sent it over. They should have sent over a county. I mean, they really should have. They should have just picked another county. I can't find any evidence that shows that the defense even like attempted to like outsource it though to a different county. Like that's something the defense has to request. And I can't even find the evidence to show that like they even tried, which to me is crazy. Like it's small town upstate New York. Maybe the defense was just like so certain that like there was no evidence. They didn't need to worry about it. Right. But I mean, good defense should have still moved it. I mean, I agree 100%. But Anyway, all right. Well, that's where we're going to leave off for this episode. Come back next week for your weekly dose of Wicked. Thank you guys for joining. And now a word from our sponsors. Just kidding. We don't have any. Our sponsors are us. Yeah, our sponsors are us and we're poor. If you like what you heard and want to support a small podcast, please give us money at www.patreon.com forward slash weekly dose of wicked where you can sign up for one of our three amazing tiers for the low low price of five dollars you can become a member of the moderately wicked our next tier for seven dollars is the awesomely wicked and finally for the high rollers at ten dollars a month you can be extraordinarily wicked each tier has its own perks so go ahead and take a look there and if you like what you see then give us some money feel free to give us a follow on instagram at weekly underscore dose underscore of underscore wicked or you can just search weekly dose of wicked and it literally pops up because we're the only ones for a direct feed of our podcast please go to www.weeklydoseofwicked.buzzsprout.com currently our podcast is available on the only places that will take us which is only apple Podcasts and spotify for the time being and that's also the only places we know where to upload to make sure to come back next wednesday for your weekly Weekly dose dose of wicked. wicked but i